and I became, um, as a neurologist, those first few years, very disenchanted with the notion of pretty much diagnose and adios, meaning we make these wonderful diagnoses, but we had such little to offer our patients, and I was very frustrated because I'm a doer, I'm a fixer, I wanted to be doing things. So um, I began looking at alternatives, and more importantly, I think, began to look at the notion of preventive medicine as it relates to brain health, which um, I will say, even in those days, was very underrepresented. And even today, as we have this conversation, is still very much underrepresented. The notion that our lifestyle choices have a role to play in the destiny of our brain in terms of its health and functionality still doesn't gain huge traction amongst professionals, more so perhaps amongst the general population, as they're learning that, you know, matter of fact, our day-to-day choices are, in fact, important. episode number 78 with Dr. David Perlmutter. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Julie Fouché, family medicine resident and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring to you information and inspiration from experts and everyday individuals for how to use lifestyle to maximize health. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome back to Pursuing Health. I'm super excited to share this week's episode with you. I recorded it with physician and leader in functional medicine, Dr. David Perlmutter. We sat down at his home in Naples, Florida, not too long ago, and there we discussed his background, the link between lifestyle choices and gut health and our brain function, as well as some simple things that we can do to protect and improve our brain health. He also opened up about some of his own personal medical experiences and why he believes practicing gratitude can have an enormous impact on our health. Here's a little bit more about Dr. Perlmutter. He's a board-certified neurologist as well as a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He received his MD degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he now serves as an associate professor. He's received numerous awards, published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, and is a frequent lecturer at symposia at some of the nation's top medical institutions. Dr. Perlmutter is also the author of four New York Times bestselling books showing the connection between gut health and brain health, including Grain Brain, Brain Maker, The Grain Brain Cookbook, and his most recent book, The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan. Dr. Perlmutter has also been interviewed on many nationally syndicated television television programs, including 2020, Larry King Live, CNN, Fox, CBS, The Today Show, and Oprah, among others. Our conversation was jam-packed with knowledge and insight for maximizing brain health, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it just as much as I did. Here are a few quick reminders before we get started. First, if you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to iTunes to subscribe and consider giving it a rating. It really does make a difference. I'm also always looking for inspiring stories to share. So if you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send your story to me at info at juliefouché.com and I'll select some to share here on future episodes. This is also the last week to take advantage of a month's worth of free meal plans, shopping lists, recipes, and bodyweight workouts through the Healthy Self Reset. You can learn more about how to access these resources at HealthySelfReset.com through February 12th. Finally, please remember that although I am now officially a doctor, this podcast is meant to share the experiences of individuals and does not provide medical advice. So here we go. Let's get started with episode number 78 of Pursuing Health featuring Dr. David Perlmutter. 
Health. I'm so excited to be here with Dr. Perlmutter. Thank you so much for inviting me into your home and sitting down to chat. I'm delighted to have you here. This is great. <laughs> so I've actually, we're here in, in Naples and my parents have been coming down here for several years. Now they are retired and spend part of their year here, but it's absolutely beautiful. We've just been talking about it, but what what made you want to settle here in Naples? Uh, years ago when I was in my residency, uh, I ultimately became a uh, I don't want to say fed up, but I really became uh, disenchanted with big city life. Okay. And Naples proved to be close to my family, mm -hmm. and I thought it would be a great place to raise children, and that proved to be correct. Mm -hmm. So we settled here, and that uh, 32 years ago, <laughs> it was a good decision. We've <laughs> been very happy here. Sounds like it. Well, I love um, coming down to visit every year. It's something I look forward to, and we're a little bit further north in Fort Myers, but it always treats us well. Have you always, from a young age, did you know that you wanted to go into medicine? Uh, truthfully, I was a business major oh, for my first year of uh, okay. in, in college and then became pre-med second year. Okay. Uh, I, I always thought I would be a physician, though, truth of the matter, and... Mm -hmm. Uh, except for a period of time in elementary school when I thought I was going to be a meteorologist. Oh, interesting. And I still wonder about that decision because I love weather. Yeah. And I grew up in Coral Gables, Florida, which was at that time the home of the National Hurricane Center. Okay. And I used to spend weekends going to the National Hurricane Center and going up in the building and kind of finding my way into the various laboratories and mm -hmm. the, the displays that they would have. Uh, but then I learned that to become a meteorologist, you had to study science and things like physics and <laughs> chemistry. And I thought, no, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. So I settled on going to medical school where, of course... Of course, you're studying science you and got physics. It. So, uh, <laughs> but it's still uh, one of my passions. Very interesting. That's funny because I thought I, I thought I wanted to do medicine from a relatively young age, but I always thought space was really interesting. So I thought about... I had a period where I was fascinated with being an astronaut and being a teacher or being a farmer went through a lot of different phases but it's funny how those things kind of all come together they show up in different ways later in your life well doctor uh comes from the latin docero which mm -hmm. means to teach right or teacher like a docent in a museum for example so um you're teaching and um, this what we're doing right now ultimately yeah. i think we'll be teaching when teaching, we yeah. we get into some of the philosophy and that's you know, teaching is giving people knowledge. Once they have the knowledge, then they can act. So that's mm -hmm. very empowering. They say knowledge is power. And absolutely it is. So that's what we're purveying here is uh, the ability for, for people to make more informed decisions rather than being at the mercy of what media tells them they should be doing. Mm -hmm. And I think we've learned that <coughs> media doesn't always have our best interest, in this case, our health in mind. Very true. Very true. Now, did you, so after you decided to go into medicine, how did you end up in neurology of all, of all specialties? Well, my father was a neurosurgeon, okay. and so I began in the neurosciences very early in life. I actually did a lot of uh, research, brain-related neuroscience research okay. during my college years, and um, actually began publishing papers uh, when I was a junior in college. That's how deep was my interest. So. Mm -hmm. At that point, I was pretty well dedicated to being involved in brain science in some way. Okay. And uh, at that point, um, uh, you know, it was it was beyond simple neurology when I did my residency, and I became um, 
as a neurologist those first few years very disenchanted with the notion of pretty much diagnose and adios Mm -hmm. meaning we make Mm -hmm. these wonderful diagnoses but we had such little to offer our patients and I was very frustrated because I'm a doer I'm a fixer wanted to be doing things so um, I began looking at alternatives and more importantly I think began to look at the notion of preventive medicine as it relates to brain health Mm -hmm. which um, I will say even in those days was very underrepresented Mm -hmm. And even today, as we have this conversation, is still very much underrepresented. The notion that our lifestyle choices have a role to play in the destiny of our brain in terms of its health and functionality mm-hmm. still doesn't gain huge traction amongst professionals, more so perhaps amongst the general population, as they're learning that, you know, matter of fact, our day-to-day choices are, in fact, important. And this comes in an atmosphere where uh, individuals are aware that for example, there are heart smart choices, including the foods we eat, the amount of mm-hmm. exercise we do or don't get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are uh, choices that might relate, for example, to cancer risk or risk for osteoporosis. Uh, but the notion that our, our lifestyle choices are relevant in terms of the brain's health and destiny are only uh, just beginning to become recognized as having a lot of uh, efficacy. So. Uh, It's not that the literature hasn't been there for a long time. It has. Mm -hmm. The literature has talked for decades about the fact that exercise, physical exercise, is good for the brain. Uh, That certain food choices uh, in general, uh, macronutrient choices, are uh, important for the brain's health. Now the data is just uh, bubbling forth, and we're now in a place recognizing that not only uh, do we understand fully that sugar, for example, is toxic to the brain, but this new paradigm that relates brain health to our gut organisms, mm-hmm. wow, who would have Amazing. ever thought that? <laughs> right, right. So it's, it's a new dawn, but uh, what's so very exciting is how empowering it is that we have a new playing field when mm-hmm. we recognize, for example, the role of the gut bacteria in the brain. Mm-hmm. We have new potential tools moving forward. We have more explanation as it comes to uh, an understanding as to why these lifestyle choices are relevant in terms of the brain. Why? Well, we look at these lifestyle choices now through the lens of the gut bacteria and recognize that diets that don't nurture the gut bacteria are bad for the brain. Why? They increase inflammation. They reduce the production of B vitamins and other nutrients that the brain needs. So all the pieces are really starting to fall together now, and it's super exciting. It's a very exciting time, absolutely, and very empowering, I think, for for someone who's, you know, starting their career in medicine and also for patients to feel like we don't have to receive a diagnosis and that has to be it, but there's a lot that we can do um, and a lot we can do to prevent um, those things from happening in the first place. And I have to reflect, too, what you said about being disenchanted because as I was thinking back um, – to my actually neurology was my first rotation in medical school clinical rotation and I remember being really fascinated even from high school and college being really fascinated by the brain and the way that you know these neurons are firing and we're able to experience emotions and thoughts and all these things and then on my neurology rotation being fascinated with this diagnostically it's an amazing field because it's so exciting to be able to diagnose or figure out what area of the brain the problem is happening but then the treatments and the solutions were very disappointing, I would right. have to say. And so it seems like 
a lot of times you're prescribing mostly anti-inflammatory or steroids or things to try to decrease all that inflammation in the brain, but there wasn't a lot of question about where is all of this inflammation coming from in the first place. And similar to other fields, I know you've, you talk a lot about other fields like dermatology or rheumatology where it's, you're seeing these end manifestations of inflammation, but there's not as much investigation into what's causing that inflammation in the first exactly. place. Exactly, and I think... That's a very, very important point, and that is uh, you can try to treat the end product, you know, focusing on uh, the smoke, but let's talk about the fire. Mm-hmm. Let's put the fire out and the smoke goes away. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned anti-inflammatories, and uh, that brings us to the discussion that this ultimate mechanism for brain degeneration is this process of inflammation. And as it is in coronary artery disease and cancer and diabetes, uh, in skin disorders, in joint issues, etc. So I think focusing on well, where is that coming from and the relationship then to the gut, for example, and mm-hmm. other things like other lifestyle choices, I think is really fundamental if we're going to talk about <clears throat> the changes that people can make in order to reduce that process of inflammation and improve their chances. So that really explains why there is this coalescence of ideology as it relates to heart health, diabetes health, uh, cancer risk reduction, Alzheimer's risk reduction, because they're all predicated on the same mechanism, and which is inflammation. And mm-hmm. so it's inflammation from wherever its genesis is, can be targeted and give people a better lease on health across the spectrum of body systems, not just the brain. So it's not like there is a heart smart diet and then a different <laughs> diet for diabetes and a different diet for Alzheimer's right. prevention. No, if the unifying mechanism here is the same, mecha- inflammation, right. then the approach can be the same. Right. So it, it really relates reducing carbohydrates, getting rid of sugars, increasing dietary fiber, nurturing the microbiome, avoiding uh, foods that have been sprayed with glyphosate, favoring genetic modified foods uh, out of your diet, getting mm-hmm. rid of GMO sourced uh, pro- uh, products, the importance of exercise. Uh, yeah, exercise builds stronger bones. Of course we know that. Maybe it's good for your heart. Mm-hmm. It is, obviously. But aerobic exercise is important across the spectrum of uh, maintenance of health and prevention of disease, even as it relates to the brain. And in fact, the data relating exercise to brain health and resistance to dementia is probably more compelling and more profound than its relationship to any other disease state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know that uh, our well-respected researchers at UCLA in collaboration with uh, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh have shown that aerobic exercise may be associated with as much as a 50% reduction in risk for becoming a demented person. Wow. That is a situation for which there is no treatment. Right. And to know that and to say 50%, there's hardly anything else that can have that much of an impact. That's right. And, you know, many chronic diseases. So knowing that, how can you not <laughs> start implementing that into your life? It, it is compelling. Mm-hmm. And so then what motivates people's choices? Well, mot- what motivates people's choices uh, really has to do with marketing and media. Mm-hmm. That um, if you have heartburn, you should take a an acid-blocking drug. You mm-hmm. see the commercials on the evening news every night, and you see it in print material as well. 
you need this drug because you have acid indigestion. And if you want to eat crap, you can if you take this magic pill that's over the counter. Well, as published uh, recently uh, in a well-respected journal, we see that uh, consumption of those proton pump inhibiting drugs is associated with a 42% increased risk for dementia. It was published in the journal Stroke. Uh, So having said that, that would be news. Uh, But there's nobody who benefits from that getting that news out. I mean, obviously, it's not going to help sell product. (laughs) Uh, And that, you know, this is peer-reviewed science, which I think is the playing field upon which we uh, articulate this information. Mm -hmm. Uh, Peer-reviewed, well-respected science Mm -hmm. tells us that, tells Mm -hmm. us that we have a dramatic increased risk of dementia if we uh, take uh, other medications that are related to changing the gut bacteria. That there's a powerful risk for dementia in people who take uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, again, affecting the gut bacteria through multiple mechanisms. We know that any changes that the bacteria in our gut experience that are detrimental go well beyond uh, affecting the gut, affect the heart, the skin, the joints, and the brain. And again, it gets back to that process of inflammation. Mm-hmm. But in understanding that our lifestyle choices change the expression of our genome, the expression of our life code, our DNA, our inherited gift from all who have come behind and all who have contributed to the cultivation of this, uh, the highest level of genetic perfection to date, uh, that we can change the expression of that code based upon our lifestyle change, our lifestyle choices, I think is very, very uh, exciting and compelling, but it gives us a lot of responsibility. A lot. Because we can change that DNA expression for the negative and amplify the production of free radicals, amplify the production of the mediators of inflammation, and pave the way for our own destruction of health. The other side of the coin is understanding, for example, that exercise, specifically aerobic exercise, turns on the genes that amplify the production of brain growth hormone called BDNF, Mm -hmm. allowing us to have more brain cells and better connectivity between our brain cells and associated with decreased risk for dementia by doing, uh, by running, by doing CrossFit, by doing uh, weightlifting, whatever it is that you want to do, by dancing, by gardening, whatever you do to Mm -hmm. get your heart rate up. Mm Um, what a powerful notion. You know, I say to people, there is something you need to do to protect your brain. It's going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, you have to go and buy something. And what is it you have to buy? A new pair of sneakers. <laughs> That's it. And get your, just get your motivation going. And if you need science to support uh, what I've just told you, mm-hmm. uh, go to my website, read them. Just click on mm-hmm. um, exercise and you'll read the 30 new studies that have come out relating higher levels of exercise to protecting the brain. Mm-hmm. It's 1% determination and 99% perspiration. You got to do it. There's no pill. Right. That's, I think, the hard part. And like you said, with media, the sort of our cultural tendency is to want the quick fix and to expect that, um, or not, not want to work hard. I think that that's kind of where we're at, where everything is easier and faster and more accessible Um, But I think what you said earlier was interesting about just how 
how some of this data comes out and how it's actually implemented into practice. And a lot of times I remember when that study came out, I felt like I was hearing it more from patients than from the physicians where patients will hear about it and they'll ask, you know, should I really still be on this PPI? Um, I heard it's going to give me dementia or they'll, a lot of times statins, the same thing, they'll come in and ask about them. And a lot of physicians, just because, you know, they're going purely off of guidelines or, um, you know, what the standard of medical practice is, won't be as well-versed in some of that new data. And so I think what you've done is really, I think, a huge service to the general population by reaching the general population as opposed to simply being stuck in kind of an academic setting. Because I think one of the most frustrating things for me is that there is a lot of data that's out there, but the amount of time that it takes to be mulled over and to be integrated into medical practice is so slow. Well, we have set it as a goal to change that, Mm -hmm. and it's happening. And, uh, you know, the good news is we have uh, the ability to leverage social media, which Mm -hmm. is great, Mm -hmm. because now the hundreds of thousands of people that are touched by what we talk about are beginning, uh, this allows them to start to scratch their heads and challenge, which Mm -hmm. is a good thing. That helps to move the ball down the field. Mm -hmm. If we accept the status quo, we won't make progress. Uh, Ronald Reagan said that status quo is Latin term for the the mess we're in mm. <laughs> and so we've got to right or wrong yeah. challenge uh, what's going on around us that's how we will make progress mm-hmm. and uh, we talked about the be- at the beginning of the interview and that is that uh, providing individuals information allows them to make new choices mm-hmm. that's hugely empowering for them mm-hmm. because again the the status quo is basically live your life however you choose mm-hmm. eat whatever the heck you want uh, be a couch potato and then we have magic bullets for you you right. know as it relates to the brain there are no magic bullets out there there is no meaningful pharmaceutical treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Now, uh, Bill Gates has just dedicated hundreds, uh, rather, I think it was $100 million wow. uh, to help find the cure for Alzheimer's. Do I, am I in favor or opposed? I'm absolutely in favor. If there was an Alzheimer's cure medicine today, you bet I would be all over sure. it. Sure. Uh, would I have used it for my father who passed away from Alzheimer's? Of course I would have. Uh, But what we do know right now, what we have in our hands, is Mm -hmm. a way of preventing that disease. We should be talking about that so that half the people won't won't have to hope for a cure because Mm -hmm. they're not going to have the problem in the first place. Mm -hmm. Is it morally the right thing to do? You bet. Is it cost effective? Absolutely. When we're spending between 230 to 250 billion dollars annually in the United States in terms of caring for patients who have now developed this preventable situation it sure makes sense to get this information out from even a monetary perspective not to mention the emotional perspective not so much on the part of the patient Mm -hmm. but for the family members who are devastated Mm -hmm. emotionally Mm -hmm. uh, who then not only lose mom or dad or spouse but then begin to worry what is their risk being uh, related to that individual yeah and I, like you said, it's empowering to feel like there is something you can do about it. And and like you like you say, that the, what's the risk of making these changes? 
So small. You may even <laughs> prevent diabetes and heart disease yeah, the, and other things along the way. <laughs> you're not going to get diabetes that you really wanted to get or, or uh, you reduce your risk for some forms of cancer. Right. You're certainly doing your heart uh, a benefit. Yeah. Uh, your skin will be better. You'll feel better. Your mood will improve. You'll sleep better. You'll have a better sex life. What's the downside here? <laughs> right. Right. It's just amazing that it's not... Um, it seems so obvious, but the hard part, I think, is implementing it and doing it because it's hard. Uh, yeah, but, you know, it's, <laughs> oh, you folks involved in alternative uh, medicine, you know, they're way out, you know, uh, they wear Birkenstocks or when you're, in our case, we're not wearing shoes no at shoes all, so at we all. must really be radical, <laughs> right? Uh, who does an interview with no shoes on? Right. Uh, but that said, um, we stay in the game. Yeah. And uh, every year... Countless more studies are published that are totally supportive of what we are saying. And, um, you know, to get back to what's the downside, what is the risk-benefit ratio of taking drugs versus the risk-benefit ratio of eating right Mm -hmm. and doing exercise? Uh, Incomparable. They are incomparable. Right. It's a great way to think about it. I want to talk a little bit about your books and maybe first about Grain Brain and specifically the impact of gluten on the brain. Because I think for a lot of people, they think about or they associate gluten with celiac disease or with GI symptoms, maybe some skin manifestations, um, increased risk for some other diseases. um, And certainly sensitivities to gluten are out there too. But I think that thinking about it as having an impact on the brain is something that isn't very well known or isn't very um, mainstream. Well, it's not mainstream, that's for sure. Um, But it's not like it hasn't been talked about for at least the past decade. Mm -hmm. That problems related to gluten may be entirely extra-intestinal, meaning may have nothing or no manifestation in the gut. Mm -hmm. Meaning you you might have no issues gut-related, and yet your brain issues, your Mm -hmm. foggy thinking, uh, headaches... Uh, even migraine headaches, confusion, movement disorders, Mm -hmm. uh, seizures may be related to gluten. Uh, It's not that Dr. Perlmutter says that. Uh, I reiterate that. Mm -hmm. I don't don't develop these ideas. I reiterate what our most well-respected researchers are publishing in journals like The Lancet. Mm -hmm. So it brings up a very good point. You mentioned celiac disease, and I want to just take that idea just a little bit further because Mm -hmm. even to this day, we still see pushback articles uh, written uh, on uh, social media mm-hmm. that seem to get a lot of attention where a nutritionist might uh, indicate that, you know, if you don't uh, have celiac disease, there's no reason you should avoid gluten. Mm-hmm. And frankly, that's really out of touch with what our most well-respected researchers are telling us. Mm-hmm. When uh, Dr. Alessio Fasano at Harvard shows us Uh, that just published in the Journal of the American Mm -hmm. Medical Association last month, uh, that it's very real that people can have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. In other words, significant reactions elsewhere in the body that do not relate to having a genetic situation Mm -hmm, or genetic mm -hmm. predisposition that we call celiac disease. Uh, And also his same laboratory showing us that the leakiness of the gut and I'll come back to that in a moment, mm-hmm. uh, that we see in relationship to disease states is something that is brought on by exposure to gliadin, which is one of the proteins found in gluten, mm-hmm. in all humans. Yowza, that becomes yeah. important. Yes. So, again, getting back to this 
notion of the importance of inflammation as a mechanism related not just to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, autism, but other problems throughout the body, we have to ask ourselves, where does it come from? And I alluded to the fact that it's coming from the gut, and you're, it, it does. It comes from the gut, mm-hmm. and it comes from breakdown of the gut wall lining, mm-hmm. which is colloquially called uh, uh, leaky gut syndrome. Mm-hmm. Well, we realize now that when the gut is permeable or leaky, that uh, that enhances the formation of chemicals that mediate inflammation in the body. We see markers of leaky gut dramatically increased in Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's, major depression, autism, diabetes, heart disease. So it's a relationship now between some dots, the process of inflammation, another dot is the leakiness of the gut, and how do we get to the leakiness of the gut? We induce changes in the gut. Mm-hmm. One of the ways is by changing uh, the bacteria that live there. Another way is by being exposed to certain chemicals that directly lead to permeability, like gliadin, a mm-hmm. protein found in gluten. Gluten being found in wheat, oats, barley, and rye. Wheat may make up as much as 40% of the calories of the typical American. So it becomes a very big uh, issue. Mm-hmm. I'll digress for a moment because I'm thinking about yeah. something I think is really important. <laughs> sure. And that is at, on this topic of damaging the gut bacteria and wheat. Mm-hmm. By and large, uh, we don't consider wheat to be in the category of GMO foods. Because mm-hmm. in America, there really isn't any GMO wheat. The danger of GMO is uh, not that necessarily the genetic modification of those seeds creates something terrible, although we don't know. Mm-hmm. But by and large, the reason that we have GMO corn, more than 90% of corn in America is genetically modified, mm-hmm. and soy and others, is because when the seeds are genetically modified, they're modified in such a way as to allow the farmers to spray these crops with an herb killer, herbicide, called a glyphosate, mm-hmm. the active ingredient in Roundup. And it turns out that glyphosate, that then ends up in the food, Mm -hmm. is devastating for the microbiome. How does this relate to wheat? Well, it relates to wheat in that the manufacturers of glyphosate, even though wheat isn't genetically modified, have convinced farmers in America, by and large, to spray their crops with glyphosate after they've been harvested Mm. to help dry the crops out so they can get to market more quickly. So even though wheat isn't uh, considered GMO, it's still at risk for glyphosate exposure. Interesting. Now, how big is the problem? Well, that uh, was recently addressed in the Journal of the American Medical Association, published about five weeks ago, Mm -hmm. which was the conclusion of a study that spanned two decades looking at urinary excretion of either glyphosate or AMPA, which is a major metabolite of glyphosate. And what did they find? They found that by and large, in the past two decades, Americans are excreting 500-fold more glyphosate than they did two decades ago. Glyphosate is damaging to the gut bacteria. There are some big big, uh, points that have been connected, dots that have been connected here. Dr. Stephanie Seneff uh, at MIT has uh, published extensive data showing relationships between glyphosate and uh, kidney disease, celiac disease, uh, inflammatory disorders in general, and autism as well. So I think we have, and the mechanism Mm -hmm. being glyphosate's ability to uh, change 
availability of vitamin D, mm-hmm. how glyphosate acts as a chelator of uh, certain things like selenium and magnesium. But most importantly, I believe how glyphosate is so powerfully detrimental to our gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. Why is that important? Because the, the gut bacteria make it their job to keep the gut lining intact. Mm-hmm. Gets us back to leaky gut, gets us back to, intest- to inflammation, and that gets us to these other disease states that we've talked about. So when we see this explosion of diabetes in children and adults and obesity and overweight in America and forms of cancer and Alzheimer's disease, there's a, there's a picture being painted here and it relates to our lifestyle choices and may well relate to this explosion of GMO-related products in the marketplace by virtue of the fact that they've been sprayed with this poison. that the World Health Organization has characterized as a probable human carcinogen. So let me pull two dots together for you. And here are two dots that I think are really important. And that is that the World Health Organization has said that glyphosate is a probable human carcinogen. Mm -hmm. And the JAMA study published last month saying that this probable human carcinogen Mm -hmm. has increased 500% in humans in the past two decades. I think we need to noodle that a little bit. Yeah. That we're spraying our food with a poison that has increased 500% now in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And this poison has been determined to be a probable cancer-causing agent. I I want that to sit for a moment (laughs) and not be glossed over because it's so important. It's the reason we will vote with our wallets and choose non-GMO foods for this very specific reason. Now, we're told not to worry, everything's fine, glyphosate Mm -hmm. is harmless. That's not what the science is telling us. So we have to really pay attention to that. Now, why am I, as a neurologist, as a brain specialist, talking to Julie here about this connection? Mm -hmm. Because it relates to inflammation, and Alzheimer's is an inflammatory disorder that is skyrocketing Mm -hmm. in terms of its prevalence in the world. Uh, we know with 40 million Alzheimer's patients in the world now, uh, and it's uh, it's just increasing so rapidly, and everyone's wondering why. Well, maybe this isn't the only reason, mm-hmm. uh, but it's I believe something to think about. I think that our high carbohydrate, high sugar diet is clearly related, based upon research from published in the New England Journal of Medicine, published by the Proceedings of the Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the research is really extensive that shows those individuals who favor a higher fat, lower carb diet have a lower risk of dementia. Maybe nobody will hear anything more in our time together today mm-hmm. than that statement. That's powerful. Yeah. Those individuals who favor carbs as the macronutrient for their calories, as opposed to fat, have a higher risk. Their risk is about 88% increased. Wow. If you favor fat, as opposed to carbs for your calories, your risk is decreased by about 42%. Published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, researchers uh, from the Mayo Clinic. Wow. And combine that with the 50% um, increase or decrease with exercise, that's just those two things alone. It's pretty powerful. That's all we're saying. Right. (laughs) Eat right, get some exercise, and while you're at it, maybe make sure you're sleeping well. Yeah. And uh, have pay attention to your relationships with other people. I mean, we the list can go on. Right. But who knew? Who knew that eating right, uh, get, getting exercise and sleeping right were so powerful? Mm-hmm. Truth be known, uh, 
People have known that for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And it's only just recently where we're told, oh, no, that stuff doesn't matter. Eat whatever crap you want. Stay up playing video games, watching TV, and um, don't worry about your sleep. Uh, you're, we'll take care of any problem you right. may get. Right. Well, the pharmaceutical industry is great. They're working on cures, but they have failed us. 100% failure in terms of as it relates to Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm all in that they should find a cure. That'd be wonderful. Mm -hmm. But they don't have one right now. And um, I'd like to see more monies dedicated to exploring how we prevent that disease in the first place. Mm -hmm. There's a quote from the Neijing, the Yellow Emperor in the 4th century BCE, Mm -hmm. who stated that prevention is the ultimate principle of wisdom. To cure a disease after it has manifested is like digging a well when one feels thirsty or forging weapons when the war has already begun. Hmm. What, what we're doing right now is we're, we're forging these weapons in the war that's already begun. Yeah. I'm saying, let's go to the peace table here mm-hmm. and stop uh, even the thought of war. Let's get along with our gut microbiome. Let's become in better relationship with our genome. Mm-hmm. That DNA that's our gift doesn't live in a glass case in Milwaukee. <laughs> it's part of everything we are and we're, intimately involved in it mm-hmm. moment to moment in terms of its expression. There was this, um, and it continues to this day, this dichotomy between nature and nurture. Mm-hmm. Are we, is it our nature to be healthy or not? Is mm-hmm. it in our DNA? Or are, are, is how we nurture, we were nurtured and how we're nurturing our bodies now what's really important. Mm-hmm. The nurture camp says, yes, you know, the lifestyle choices, food is very important. The nature part says, really, no, it's the genetic cards that you've been dealt that pretty much determines whether you're going to be healthy or not. We now recognize that there is this beautiful dance that occurs between nature and nurture, that uh, we dramatically influence our epigenetic expression Mm -hmm. moment to moment, Mm -hmm. uh, and that 70% of the genes that deal with health and longevity are under our direct control. That's that's a heck of a responsibility. And something that I think still most people do not realize. I think that a lot of times, especially just in the average, in my family medicine clinic, you see patients come in, well, diabetes runs in my family, Alzheimer's runs in my family, so I'm going to get it someday. And I think there's still a lot of people who think that my genes are what they are. There's nothing I can do about them. But in fact, that's so far from the truth. Yeah, I think people uh, believe the older science. We were all taught that, yep. taught that, and I could understand from that perspective where that mentality might come mm-hmm. from. But I also think that there is uh, this sense of not wanting to take responsibility too. Mm-hmm. Sure. That it's genetic. I'm basically going to get what mom and dad had. So why should I not do mm-hmm. whatever the heck I want? Mm-hmm. Because you can rewrite your destiny. Mm-hmm. And I've admitted my dad died of Alzheimer's disease. I watched it happen mm-hmm. over uh, you know a couple of years. I watched it happen in the final hours. I mean, I went through the the, the whole experience, right. and that will not be my destiny. Not likely. Could it be? Sure, it could be. Mm-hmm. I mean, there now when you know my risk is increased having a primary relative, sure. uh, but I therefore understand that I've got to do what I have to do uh, every single day to keep that from being my destiny because I don't want it to be. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a rough road. And again, it's not just a rough road for the patient, but um, 
it's tough for families. Yeah. You know, as a neurologist, families come in and they, oh, they say, doctor, you don't know what it's like. My mother used to be this and that. Mm-hmm. And, and now to see her in this situation. Right. And my dad was across the tr- the uh, the parking lot in a nursing oh. home. I mean, I got it. I understand. <laughs> the ultimate and I expression would of empathy. Yeah. That I'm not sitting here wearing the white coat and uh, don't get this. Mm-hmm. I get it from that perspective. But I get it from the perspective of a kid who lost his dad to this. Wow. You know, he was a brilliant brain surgeon. Mm-hmm. The, the challenging part is it didn't have to be that way mm-hmm. because we were living under a mentality at that time that there was nothing to be done. Right. It's a new game and a, a new reality. So uh, that's, you know, I'm grateful to you that you allow me to, to give this story out mm-hmm. because maybe one of your viewers is going to say, you know... Um, I think there might be some intelligence there. Let's yeah. at least look into it. Yeah. Uh, and by and large, the answers are not going to be found at your doctor's office because that's where you'll learn about a drug uh, that won't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- you've got to do the work and read the literature and or mm-hmm. read the popular books that are out there that talk about this mm-hmm. stuff. And I think most of your doctors will be perfectly happy for you to make these lifestyle choices. They're not going to fight you in doing it because... There's so many other positive benefits, but they may be skeptical about the impact that it can have. Um, but certainly, I think, you, like we've talked about, there's really nothing you have to lose and can, you can really only benefit from doing yeah. it. Yeah, you know, the unfortunate thing is there are some aspects of, uh, of the protocol that are not necessarily easy things for people to accomplish on their own. Mm-hmm. The, big, the big players, the exercise, diet, sleep, mm-hmm. you can do on your own. You want to maximize your vitamin D level mm-hmm. in terms of getting it into the zone. Mm-hmm. So you need to have that blood test performed and take as much vitamin D as mm-hmm. it requires mm-hmm. to get your vitamin D up, up level to upper 80s into the 90s. So mm-hmm. you need your doctor's acquiescence for that. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure your vitamin B12 level is where it needs to be, not just in the normal zone, but mm-hmm. optimized. And getting back to vitamin D, we say the normal level of vitamin D is between, let's say, 30 and 100. Mm-hmm. So if you're at 31, doctor's going to give you a pat on the back and say, look, according to this, you're in the normal yep. range. Well, 31 is stinky. It's terrible. <laughs> and I'm not going to say that a level of vitamin D of 31 is going to condemn you to Alzheimer's, but it's a straw on the camel's back. Mm-hmm. So you need to amplify it. You say, doctor, I know I'm in the normal range, but is that the best level for me? Mm-hmm. So you want to increase your vitamin D consumption. You want to ask your doctor to do a blood test for something called homocysteine. And it might just be that the doctor has not heard of homocysteine. Mm-hmm. I'll spell it H-O-M-O-C-Y-S-T-E-I-N-E just for your viewers. Mm-hmm. And that is a powerful risk marker for dementia and vascular disease in general. Mm-hmm. You want that homocysteine level to be low. Uh, and it is absolutely controlled by, in most people, their consumption of B vitamins. Mm. If that homocysteine level is high, you need higher levels of folate and higher levels of uh, vitamin B12 and B6, for example, until it normalizes. So there are a lot of factors that um, do require an overview from the physician. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are just a few. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that having blood tests for your fasting blood sugar, very relevant. Uh, everybody seems to be able to do that. You can buy a kit in the in the pharmacy and check your own blood sugar, mm-hmm. right? But you should also know your hemoglobin A1C and your fasting insulin levels. Mm-hmm. Why? Because those are also not just markers of risk when they're elevated, 
but you can follow those uh, blood tests to see that you're making really good progress, mm -hmm. that your dietary change has now lowered your hemoglobin A1C from 6 down to 5.2. That's dramatic. You know, you may go to your doctor and he or she will give you a pat on the back and say, well, A1C of 6, you're not diabetic, right. don't worry about it. Well, we'll just wait till it gets to 6.5. Yeah, it's, it's you're not diabetic is what they say, but the word that hangs in the air is yet. Right. Right? <laughs> Having a hemoglobin A1C of 6 is devastating to your brain, as mm -hmm. published in the New England Journal of Medicine. One of the most powerful factors that relates to decline in brain function, as well as size of the brain, is A1C. The, uh, a study from uh, New England Journal shows that um, even a fasting blood sugar of 105, which most doctors are going to say, hey, that's cool, don't worry right. about it, you're not diabetic, again, yet, mm -hmm. uh, that even having a blood sugar uh, at that level is associated with an increased risk for dementia. That the norms of blood sugar that we say, okay, normal uh, blood sugar is going to be between, let's say, 95 to 105, or whatever the laboratory chooses, we need to re-evaluate uh, that. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to see patients with blood sugars in the upper 80s mm -hmm. because that's optimal, not just in the normal range, but that's what's really best, lower the better. And it really gets to this simple dietary choice of less sugar and carbs and more fat. Mm -hmm. uh, another area that people have so rejected based upon media influence, which mm -hmm. filters through the doctor's office, that fat is a horrible thing, mm -hmm. you know, dietary fat. We've all got to be on a low-fat diet. We've all got to be on a diet that sends terrible signals to our DNA, a diet that humans have never consumed. We've never been on a low-fat diet <laughs> in, well, hominids in, what, uh, two million years? <laughs> never. And suddenly, uh, Ansel Keys says, fat is bad, everybody's got to go low-fat. And everybody did it. We like and we fought like sheep. We we decided uh, these guys knew what they were talking about. Eisenhower had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. We're going low fat, <laughs> <laughs> and you know rates of Alzheimer's soared. Rates of diabetes exploded. Heart disease continued to increase. Uh, wrong idea. Admit you were wrong. The data shows you were wrong. No problem. Let's move forward and give people the right information. Mm -hmm. So when we see the U.S. government Dietary Advisory Committee now changing their tune, mm -hmm. yes. We're moving in the right direction. Yeah. So, Finally. you know, we light the single candle. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to curse the darkness a little bit, with, <laughs> but put a positive spin on it, we're saying that we're all trying to just do the best we can. Right, right. So I just want to summarize, kind of, we talked about a lot of different things that we can do for our brain health, but can you just summarize for us, like, the top as far as dietary changes, maybe supplements um, and other lifestyle things that we can do to maximize our brain health? Well, the, the top three are going to be exercise mm -hmm. and then exercise <laughs> and then after that exercise. Okay. It's so important because we live very, very sedentary lives. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the fact that I did the pre-core this morning and, and did some ab work mm -hmm. and lifted weights. That doesn't mean I get to spend the rest of the day in bed reading a book right. or journals or whatever mm -hmm. you're thinking I'm doing myself. Uh, you've got to be active. That's how humans have been. So mm -hmm. exercise is a powerful epigenetic modulator. What does that mean? Exercise changes the expression of our DNA mm -hmm. for the better. Mm -hmm. Quite specifically, it turns on the genes that make BDNF. That amplifies the growth of new brain cells in your memory center as well as the connectivity of your brain cells. That translates to a better brain, a brain that is resistant to dementia, to degeneration. Mm 
Beyond exercise, the diet has to change. Hopefully for many of your viewers, it's already changed. But if people are already on a low-carb, low-sugar, higher-fat diet, that's Mm -hmm. the ticket. Mm -hmm. Uh, Recognizing that some carbohydrates are good for us, the fiber-rich vegetables that contain lots of good fiber to nurture the microbiome, whether it's jicama, dandelion, greens, chicory root, garlic, onions, leeks, etc. Those are carbs that contain within them fiber that nurtures our microbiome so the microbiome can heal the gut lining so we have less leaky gut and less inflammation. Mm -hmm. So those are the fundamentals of the diet. If you choose to supplement your diet with ways of even increasing the production of good fats that Mm -hmm. we call Mm -hmm. ketones, then that's a good choice. Coconut oil, MCT oil as well. Very positive. Um, So diet is fundamental. At least eight hours of restorative sleep is really key. Now, there are a lot of techniques that are coming of age now, Mm -hmm. technologies in terms of improving our sleep that uh, people can be looking at. But at the very least, go and get a sleep study and determine. Mm -hmm. You may say, I went to bed at 9 o'clock. I woke up at 7.30. I slept through the night. Or Mm -hmm. maybe I got up once to pee. I went right back to sleep. Mm -hmm. That said... Your sleep might not be restorative at all. You may have periodic leg movements. You may have self-arousal that takes you out of deeper sleep. So your sleep is actually very superficial and Mm non-restorative. So have a sleep study. Go to a sleep lab. They wire you up. I did one. Mm -hmm. It's um, restorative sleep when the brain is able to process, Mm -hmm. to package things away, and to get rid of its debris. So really, I think, uh, under-recognized in terms of being such an important player. Um, those are the keys. Mm-hmm. Uh, would I be happy if a person told me that's what they did in terms of knowing that the the major part of the program is being adopted? You bet. Mm-hmm. But there are more things I think we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Make sure your homocysteine level is low. Make sure your vitamin D level is where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Your hemoglobin A1C representing your average blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Lower. Lower fasting insulin. Uh, are there supplements that are important? You bet there are. DHA, which can come from Uh, algae or come from fish oil Mm -hmm. uh, is really critical for the brain. Turmeric, very important as an Mm -hmm. anti-inflammatory. I think coenzyme Q10, B vitamins are very important. Vitamin Mm -hmm. D, really almost on the top of the list. Probiotics, really important, but even also in that discussion needs to be prebiotics. Mm -hmm. Prebiotics are the type of non-digestible fiber that nurture our gut bacteria upon whose health our health depends. Mm -hmm. And those were the same vegetables you were talking about earlier. Or go to the health food store and stand at the counter and say, Mm -hmm. I want a prebiotic and scream (laughs) it out. And they'll They'll find find it for you to get rid of you. (laughs) (laughs) So prebiotic fiber made from things like acacia gum Mm -hmm. or baobab fruit. Uh, They're well tolerated and they are just super in terms of nurturing the gut bacteria. So the gut bacteria can do what they do. Mm -hmm. They want to do. They want to heal your gut lining. They want to create the B vitamins. Uh, They are involved in the creation of our neurotransmitters, of our short-chain fatty acids like Mm -hmm. butyrate that's so important for healing the gut and healing the brain. Uh, Those are really important fundamentals. Um, There are other supplements that we're seeing now Mm -hmm. uh, come into the marketplace like whole coffee fruit concentrate Mm. made from the coffee berry they take the seed out they call it a coffee bean and we drink that and that's good for you Mm -hmm. but the fruit is actually a terrific way of increasing your bdnf like exercise does Mm -hmm. and increases uh which then goes on to have an effect on the growth of new brain cells Mm -hmm. i think 
You know, uh, when I was in medical school in the day, we were really schooled in this notion that the brain doesn't grow any new brain cells. Mm -hmm. That when you're 18, that's as good as it gets. Mm -hmm. And every beer, you lose 30,000 brain (laughs) cells or whatever. And uh, we now recognize that this process of repopulating our memory center goes on throughout our lifetimes and we control it mm-hmm. to a certain degree. Wow. We augment or increase that process by getting involved in aerobic exercise. Other things, I mentioned DHA, mm-hmm. raise BDNF. Uh, whole coffee fruit concentrate raises BDNF. So uh, there's a lot to be done. And to revisit where we were earlier, mm-hmm. it's all good. Right. What would a person <laughs> be waiting for? Um, so there you have it. Yeah. I did want to ask a couple of questions about ketogenic diets and about intermittent fasting because those are I think two new things that are becoming a little bit more talked about lately and I know um, especially for certain brain conditions people are are doing more of that but maybe you could just talk about who might want to try a ketogenic diet or try intermittent fasting or who could benefit from doing it. Excellent question. So uh, you you said those are two new things. Well, not necessarily new, but things uh, that are I, I know, more you know in the mainstream now. <laughs> That's well, they're becoming mainstream, but very old concepts, though. It, it's true. I mean, humans have always fasted, yeah. not uh, necessarily a volitional uh, mm-hmm. event, uh, because we've not always had access to twenty four seven calories mm-hmm. in, in convenience stores. Uh, you know our. Uh, for more than 99% of our time on this planet, it was truly feast or famine. Mm -hmm. There would be times of caloric abundance and times of caloric scarcity. And as such, we honed our DNA to be responsive to these variations in calorie availability. Mm -hmm. So we've always fasted. You know, we were one meal to the next, whatever we could kill uh, or whatever we found on the ground. Uh, oftentimes rotting, which would be a good thing because it was full of microbes. (laughs) That was great for us. Um, And that's why, you know, the notion of intermittent fasting, I think, is so powerful because it changes gene expression Mm -hmm. for survival. Intermittent fasting activates a variety of gene pathways that are positive. The sirtuin pathway, for example, uh, being one. Uh, We know that when we are fasting, we are increasing the body's caloric uh, dependence upon um, products that are made from body fat. Mm-hmm. Once we've exhausted our glycogen storage, which makes sugar, then we start tapping into body fat. And the resource is much more vast, not only because fat supplies far more calories, but we have a lot more fat than we have glycogen in mm-hmm. general, mm-hmm. glycogen being stored in the, by primarily in the liver. So this has been a survival mechanism that has worked for us for a long, long time, as Mm -hmm. long as we've been on the planet. Mm -hmm. Now we're just beginning to understand how darn salubrious intermittent fasting really is. So uh, it's being used in uh, as part of treatment protocols for cancer, for example, uh, and and even in the treatment of dementia. Mm -hmm. Partly in addition to its effect on gene expression, because it enhances the availability of certain chemicals called ketones, which is to the second Mm -hmm, part of your question, mm -hmm. being on a ketogenic diet or a diet that generates ketones, ketogenic. And you can get into ketosis by fasting. That's a a natural Mm -hmm. thing that has been protective of our bodies. You can also enhance the production of these ketones in our bodies uh, by 
adding certain things that increase those ketones, like using MCT oil or mm -hmm. using coconut oil, those things won't really work unless you're already dedicated to reducing your carbohydrates and sugars. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yes, it's great to take MCT oil. I take it myself. Uh, but it's not going to do its job if glucose is hanging around, if uh, your blood sugars mm -hmm, are up mm -hmm. because you had your sweet roll or your uh, right. whatever, gluten-free cereal that's covered with sugar in the morning isn't going to work. Right. You can inhibit getting into ketosis by drinking a glass of orange juice. And here we are in Florida mm -hmm. where, you know, the, the Florida sunshine tree uh, <laughs> that makes orange juice. And it's important to understand that a glass of orange juice will provide you about 34 to 36 grams of sugar. Mm -hmm. That's going to keep you from getting into ketosis. So ketogenic diet is found to be really uh, a powerful tool. Uh, we see that individuals who get into ketosis are uh, have cognitive improvement. Uh, a wonderful study from uh, about 11 years ago, 12 years ago, demonstrated dramatic improvement in patients suffering from Parkinson's disease who were placed on a, uh, an aggressive uh, ketogenic diet. Only five patient in, patients in that study, but it was a proof of concept. Mm -hmm. Worked dramatically. Brain cells function better with less sugar and more ketones. Oh, no. The, you'll <laughs> see comments this, when this is posted. Yeah. Uh, the brain requires glucose. That doctor doesn't know what he's talking right. about. It's old news. <laughs> The brain f uh, just thrives in a ketone-rich environment. Mm -hmm. There is an FDA-approved medical food for treating dementia with the mm -hmm. understanding this, this mm -hmm. knowledge, uh, this basis of information. Uh, when we say work by Dr. Thomas Seyfried, mm -hmm. for example, who wrote The Metabolic Basis of Cancer, mm -hmm. uh, I interviewed him on, on, on my program. Uh, it's a great a great book for yeah, anyone it's, listening. It's terrific. Yeah. Uh, is it intense? Yes. Very, is there a newer dense, book yeah. out that uh, I was actually reading last night that talks about using ketosis as part of a cancer therapeutic mm -hmm. protocol? You bet. And Easy to understand. Uh, I have it upstairs. I'll give it okay. to you after the interview. Um, but the point is that uh, cancer cells love sugar. Mm -hmm. And when you deprive them of sugar and ketones are floating around that your body cells can use and cancer cells might not be adept at using, mm -hmm. it's a way in addition to other modalities like chemotherapy, like surgery, like radiation therapy, adjunctive, added on. Mm -hmm. It's a way of improving a person's chances. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not saying that, you know, if a patient has cancer and is getting a certain protocol, they should abandon that protocol and suddenly go on a ketogenic diet and mm -hmm. hope for the best. Mm -hmm. No, what I am saying is that these are books that describe the utilization of a ketogenic diet in addition to mm -hmm. the other modalities. Mm -hmm. So our cells really ha have been primed to thrive in that environment, whereas cancer cells don't get the, the memo. They mm -hmm. don't do well in a keto-rich environment. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think there's huge benefit to considering these approaches. And I know that ketogenic diets were studied early on in patients with epilepsy. You talked about cancer. Um, are there other populations that, of patients that may benefit from doing more of a, and maybe also the difference between more of a very strict ketogenic diet versus just a low carb, higher fat diet? I think the biggest population that needs to get this memo mm -hmm. are uh, the close to 30 million Americans now diagnosed with diabetes mm -hmm. and perhaps the other 60 to 70 million who are pre-diabetic 
uh, and uh, you know, recognize that's a big number. That's, that's close lot. to 100 <laughs> million people who are at risk for diabetes. Mm-hmm. Diabetes in and of itself is a devastating disease. From mm-hmm. my perspective, it doubles your risk for Alzheimer's. So that's an ideal diet for diabetics to be on, people who mm-hmm. are type 2 diabetic or are at risk for that. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I interviewed a, a physician mm-hmm. uh, recently, a type 1 diabetic, autoimmune, insulin-dependent diabetes, mm-hmm. who himself is also on a ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. And for you know those of us who went through our internships and residency, fearing going down to the emergency room and having to deal with a patient with a diabetic okay, yeah, ketoacidosis, yeah. Uh, the idea of Increasing ketones in a patient with diabetes is, we would recoil at that. Mm-hmm. Turns out that that is a unique situation, a very rare situation, and that, uh, you know, it may well be that even type 1 diabetics can do well on this program. Mm-hmm. I think heart disease lends itself wonderfully to a ketogenic program. Certainly, overweight and obesity, this is the ticket mm-hmm. for getting in shape and losing weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, your body's going to tap into fat as a fuel source. What mm-hmm. more do you want? You want to take some magic fat burner pill that you saw at 2 o'clock in the morning on TV? No. This is how nature intended uh, you to get to a healthy body weight, to mm-hmm. be that you know, lean hunter-gatherer type that is really in our deepest, uh, our deepest nature. Does it mean that there should never be sugar or carbohydrates? Well, you want carbohydrates in the form of prebiotic-rich fiber. Mm -hmm. And there can be some foods, a fruit that does contain sugar Mm -hmm. at times. Mm -hmm. You've got to watch it, and you've got to space it out. Uh, Rob Knight's new book uh, talks about that whole notion of cycling and how bringing some sugar into your diet from time to time Mm -hmm. uh, really has merit. And Mm -hmm. that does mimic the human condition as well, historically. Why? Uh, you know, we would have uh, some foods that had sugar in them mm-hmm. in the late summer and in the early fall when mm-hmm. the fruit would ripen, when the blueberries would ripen, for example, and we would eat them. Why would we eat the sweet fruit? Because humans have always had a sweet tooth. Yeah. There's no one you've ever interviewed who didn't. Have, everybody <laughs> has a sweet tooth. We do our best. We take our prefrontal cortex and let that make our eating decisions yeah. rather than our, our instinctual, which would say eat sugar all day long mm-hmm. because it's addictive. Mm-hmm. So there is an advantage that has served us in consuming some sugar-laden foods uh, in the late summer and Mm -hmm. early fall because sugar is responded to in the body by the body's secretion of insulin. Insulin packs the glucose away, but insulin also stimulates the genesis of body fat, which in the day allowed us to survive the winter when we didn't have calories. So Mm -hmm. we'd lay down this layer of reserve, caloric reserve called body fat, that then allowed us to survive. What a beautiful mechanism. But, you know, that mechanism is being um, exploited 365 days a year now, which explains, you know, people give into it because Mm -hmm. we all want to eat sweet. Right. But uh, if we're think about it and want to make the better choices for health. Mm -hmm. People go to the dentist because it's good for their teeth. They get a colonoscopy every eight years because they were told to do so. They make these decisions. Everybody bought into the low-fat mentality because they were told to do so. Mm -hmm. Now, we're giving information that sugar is anything but your friend. Mm -hmm. That fat is your friend. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, you know, makes us sound like we're saying the world is flat, but the reality is a, it's what humans have always eaten, mm-hmm. and B, the science backs us up now. It's empowering, definitely. That's the mission. 
Well, I want to finish with three questions I ask everyone on the podcast. Okay. So the first one is the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health. Uh, that's easy. And that is to uh, conduct my day always keeping the sense of gratitude mm-hmm. as number one. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you had a pretty profound experience with gratitude I did. in your past. Would you mind sharing uh, that story? I, I don't mind a bit. <laughs> My life is an open book. <laughs> um, I think that, again, every day uh, the, being involved in, in the sense of gratitude, mm-hmm. I think, defines us uh, in terms of uh, how we conduct ourselves mm-hmm. uh, in terms of other people and the way that we act. Mm-hmm. Uh, briefly, um, I lost... Uh, my closest friend. Um, I went to the emergency room. His wife had called me, mm-hmm. texted me. And there he was, uh, well beyond being in a coma. He had, uh, I looked at his CAT scan, he had a massive cerebral mm-hmm. hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. And he was already gone. Mm-hmm. But it was clear that the family wasn't going to be able to deal with it in an acute sense. So mm-hmm. relatives had to fly in, and I kept him on life support for uh, t- another 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And it was a very, very difficult time. And this is a, a, the man who is th- my daughter's godfather. Wow. He married my wife and me. Wow. And so very, very special person mm-hmm. in our lives. So um, finally, that evening, er, you know, I explained to the family where we were. Mm-hmm. And we took him off life support. Mm-hmm. Physically took the tube out, as it were. And he then passed. I went home. And uh, didn't feel great the next day. That night, I felt uh, even worse and became violently ill, like I've never been. Wow. I mean, just, uh, I-, I couldn't believe how sick I was. Anyway, the next morning, I was hoping I'd feel better. And um, I was in the kitchen here mm-hmm. uh, because Mike's wife had said, can you collect photographs and video? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have a memorial today. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at photographs of Mike, and then I came to a video where our band, Mike and I were in the same band, we were playing at a concert, and as I was watching uh, that video, I suddenly felt weak again. Mm. So I went over here to the living room and uh, went onto the couch, and my wife looked at me. She said, you don't look good. Uh, and I don't know how I looked, but she said, but you never say to me, right. <laughs> I'm taking you to the hospital. Wow. <laughs> you can't take me to the hospital. <laughs> so uh, my response, which was very surprising to her, mm-hmm. was, uh, you better call 911 because I don't think you're going to get me there in time. Wow. That's how I felt. That's how you felt. The ambulance showed up and I had to walk, I had to get off the couch and get onto the stretcher, which mm-hmm. was five or six feet away. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. Wow. So these guys picked me up and put me on the stretcher and put me in the ambulance. Of course, the neighbors are all watching of course. Dr. Health here, you know. <laughs> What's going on? And I was in uh, a very aggressive rhythm abnormality of my heart, mm-hmm. uh, atrial fibrillation. My rate was 180. Wow. And um, it was very sobering to be in the ambulance looking out the back window and seeing my wife and daughter following the ambulance, get mm-hmm. to the emergency room. And they uh, tried their best to slow my heart down and mm-hmm. establish normal rhythm, mm-hmm. and they were unsuccessful. 
So um, next thing you know, I'm right back in the ICU. Wow. And um, nothing worked. And finally, uh, they loaded me up with maximum uh, intravenous treatment. And the next thing was to stop my heart and, mm -hmm. and shock it and mm -hmm. hope that it came back into a normal rhythm. That would be the next morning. So visiting hours are over. And I'm having a conversation with the nurse. Mm -hmm. And they're, the IVs are wide open. I go like this because you know that's yeah. how we adjust the IVs. <laughs> wide I open. Get so, uh, you know, pressure bags on my legs, the whole bit. And um, uh, he began, he's caring for me, adjusting the IVs. Just caring for me in a way that I think was very loving. Mm -hmm. I felt it. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he began telling me the story of his life. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to be the best listener I could be. Mm -hmm. And here I am, kind of on the edge, but, but really interacting him and making this all about him. Yeah. Because he, he started to tell me his story. And it was, uh, you know, began with him doing CPR and his brother who died. Wow. Wow. So, you know, we jumped right, right, right in. Right into it. And as he's telling me the story, and it's visiting hours are over, there's nobody there but him and me. Um. I felt this wave come over me of gratitude mm. and love mm -hmm. for this newly found friend. Mm -hmm. It just washed over me. And I'm looking at him caring for me. And at, uh, at that moment, my heart reverted to normal rhythm. Still, it was fast, yeah. but the rhythm resolved. I had converted to what's called sinus, sinus. rhythm, as you know. And at that point, I was going to try to go to sleep, and I, I said to him, you know, um, you know, this medicine is going to slow my rate. I don't, I don't have to be running the show here, believe yeah. me. I just said, uh, I know it's just you and me. Uh, my rate's going to come down really quickly because your IVs are wide open. Yeah. And my normal heart rate is really very slow because I'm a runner. And he said, okay, sure, you know, I'll keep an eye on whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, all night long, I'm looking over my shoulder at the monitor, and the rate's coming down, the rate's coming down, trying to go to sleep, but... The you know, watching this, the rate comes down, it's like 38. Mm -hmm. My heart rate is 38, which is pretty low. And I said, uh, you know, uh, and the IVs are still going. I'm <laughs> saying, I don't want to get into trouble here, you know, watch my rate. Yeah. So uh, finally, you know, you can't sleep in an intensive care unit. Sure. I did fall asleep, finally. Mm -hmm. I, and and then I woke up and I decided to just look at the monitor and mm -hmm. see what my heart rate was doing. And I was flatlined. I looked at the monitor, no pulse, nothing. And I said, this isn't good. <laughs> That's not what uh, you want to see. <laughs> yeah, either uh, either my heart just stopped or I've already passed mm -hmm. and this is how it is. Because mm -hmm. I heard no alarms. There was nothing happening. Mm. It was really quiet. And I didn't feel scared. I didn't feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. um, I felt gratitude for a wonderful life. Closed my eyes. I said, "I'm, ah, I'm dreaming. That's what it is. I'm dreaming." Dreaming. I closed my eyes. Opened my eyes. No, I'm <laughs> not dreaming. I'm wow. still very much awake. And then I said, that "Maybe there's a logical explanation. Maybe a lead came off, mm. one of the heart monitor leads." Yeah. So I, I reach over and find all the wires, and I trace them back. And this lead had popped off my chest. Uh. <laughs> so I take the thing and clip it back to the monitor to the, yeah. the chest lead, and beep beep. Beep, beep. <laughs> there we go. And no one ever came in. 
Uh, and I <laughs> mentioned that the, the following morning, anyway, as, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, uh, I didn't, I, I decided I wasn't going to try to go back yeah. to sleep anymore. I'll stay up all night. No, nothing unusual about that from my past. And, um, I'm saying to the nurse, well, you know, they backed the medicine off. They finally stopped and said, now that I'm off the drug, can mm-hmm. we take the IV out? Mm-hmm. Sure. And what about this maintenance IV that comes out? What are these monitor, these pressure bags? Can we take them off my leg? Sure. And the art, the uh, oxygen monitor, mm-hmm. pulse oximeter. Can take. So the by the time the cardiologist comes in, mm-hmm. I'm unplugged, as they say. I'm on the floor doing yoga. <laughs> the cardiologist <laughs> walks you. in with a chart and he <laughs> says... I guess you want to go home. <laughs> I said, yeah, I really do. And he said, okay, uh, I'll let you go. Mm-hmm. But you have to promise me you're going to come back for a full cardiac workup, mm-hmm. um, nuclear stress test, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. And I said, you got it. Uh, I'm there. And uh, I did go back a couple weeks later. And um, I was at, uh, they brought me up to, a, a, I think it was like 165, 170 mm-hmm. on the treadmill and my heart, uh, the, the cur- the, mm-hmm. uh, looked normal. The, the technician calls in the cardiologist and says, oh, well, gosh, what's happening? <laughs> calls him. The cardiologist grabs the clipboard, you know, the white coat, the whole bit. He says, how are you feeling? I said, I feel great. He says, you want to go faster? <laughs> I said, bring it on. So, you know, they get me up to 180. Yeah. And I'm I'm feeling great. And I'm all wired in, you know. Yeah. You, you wear you, no shirt, just all these wires. And um, the echo was fine. My heart was mm-hmm. fine. And... Um, it just shows the power of grief mm-hmm. and emotionality in terms of what it can do to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized that I processed that whole experience with Mike mm-hmm. as the neurologist. Mm. And I left out processing it as as his friend. Mm-hmm. And I never did that part. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a real, real wake up a that wake that stuff call, yeah. uh, really matters. Wow. And so... Uh, it's funny because the the morning after I was I, I came home, mm-hmm. my wife said, "Well, if you're feeling great, why don't we go to a yoga class?" <laughs> I go to yoga class, and the quote that was read by our yoga instructor yeah. at the beginning of the class was all about gratitude and yeah. showing your gratitude. Yeah. And I put it in the book. I put the quote yeah. that quote in, uh, in my most recent book, and uh, it was about even picking a piece of paper up off the ground, even though it's not yours, mm-hmm. because somebody might step on that and trip mm-hmm. or whatever. So uh, that's the short answer to question one. What are the three things? <laughs> yeah, the three things. Gratitude. But what an amazing gift, too. I mean, obviously, you know, like you said, it was a, you know, a difficult experience. But now, t- really, you're never going to underestimate the power of that gratitude. And you're going to carry it with you. And now you're telling other people about yeah. how important it is. I'm really, you know, in terms of, I don't know if this is uh, the second thing or, mm-hmm. or where it falls in uh, our bullet points, but... Mm-hmm. I'd like to tell people to take a breather. Yeah. To stop. <laughs> take a deep breath, preferably in through your nose and out through That's your mouth. That's perfect. Our audience can hear that. Yeah. I think. And because and <laughs> everybody is so caught up yes. in so many things uh, that are seen on the news mm-hmm. uh, that this guy did this to this person. Mm-hmm. And that our country is doing this or, or we're not, whatever. All the stuff that's going on, it's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't bury your head in the sand. But don't internalize that. Don't mm-hmm. make that part of your being. And the more you engage in it, the more it becomes part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And the more it changes your brain through neuroplasticity to a brain that 
is receptive to all of that negativity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's time to take that deep breath. And if you focus on gratitude, it's a good thing to focus on. Uh, it, it's mm-hmm. uh, because then your choices are going to be different. Mm-hmm. Gratitude paves the way for you to make the best health choices mm-hmm. to get back to why we're here yeah, today. Yeah. Uh, because if you're grateful to this beautiful creation that is your body Mm -hmm. and grateful to all of your ancestors who allowed you to breathe the breath that you breathe today Mm -hmm. you are given this gift but you're given this obligation to to do something really important with it so that's part of the gratitude Mm -hmm. it's the expression what do Mm -hmm. you do so you're grateful great now you show it what john kennedy called noblesse oblige i don't know if he Mm coined the term mm-hmm. but he used the term the, the op- this noble obligation that we have uh, because of all the gifts that we've been given the mm-hmm. gift of you know this physical body that works uh, are there flaws with it you bet uh, th- some people have more challenges than others mm-hmm. but we all have uh, issues that we'd like to work through both mm-hmm. physically and emotionally for sure mm-hmm. but um, you know how do you express that gratitude every single day wow that's beautiful all right Two more things. Uh, Sorry, we'll make these quicker. How do we characterize two more things? Two more things that you do on a regular basis that have a positive impact on your health. Exercise. Yep. Um, I I think it's important to walk the talk, and Mm -hmm. I talk about exercise all the time. Mm -hmm. So I I do that uh, religiously. Uh, Is there a time if I'm traveling eight hours on a plane that I can't get in a good aerobic exercise that day? It happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that's really fundamental. Um, and I just think uh, doing for me the best that I can to honor the gifts that I've been given and I I recognize what my gifts are mm-hmm. I know I'm crappy at ping pong so that's not a <laughs> gift <laughs> I know where I fail uh, yeah. I know I'm a you know uh, some things I do marginally and those are not necessarily my gifts mm-hmm. my unique gift I think is to look at science uh, take as much in as I possibly can Mm -hmm. digest that and make what I've learned available to as many people as I can Mm -hmm. I think I'm good at that I have a good skill Mm -hmm. in terms of being able to take complex information and make it actionable Mm -hmm. so that's the third thing well, you're doing a good job with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, and I and I'm grateful for that. Yes, yeah. Uh, I'm grateful for my wife. I'm grateful for my children, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, my health as it is. I think it's, uh, you know, it's all about um, then expressing that, and mm-hmm. I express that through the recognition of of that one of not one, but that important ability that I have, and that's mm-hmm. my way of giving back. Wonderful. Well. Two last quick questions, because I know we have to wrap up here, but the next one is one thing that you think would have, or you know would have a big impact on your health, but you have the hardest time implementing it. I think I could be more diligent about my supplements. Mm -hmm. I think I could probably be more diligent about getting lab work done on time. Uh, I think um, I could exercise more. I could do two and a half hours a day. could always do. I could. There does become a point where it's too much, though, so it's... And I think that I could uh, I could less engage in uh, some of the negative things that are going on around me. Mm-hmm. I, I do my best not to get involved in, but mm-hmm. you know some of the stuff's in your face, and you have to think about it. Yep. Um, 
sure. So those are, you know, I, and I'm the first to say that I, David Perlmutter is a work in progress. We all are. And that said, though, yeah. I, I think that's a good thing because I think people, I, I don't want to put myself on one side and all my readers and social media people mm-hmm. on the other. I am in this, mm-hmm. as is everybody else. It's why, for example, I am so transparent about that health event that I had mm-hmm. with, uh, that mm-hmm. we discussed because I'm at risk like anyone else. I, I work very diligently at mm-hmm. it to set an example mm-hmm. and not be one who uh, doesn't walk the talk uh, but I'm the first to say that uh, I don't uh, I'm not 100% and uh, but I do the best I can yep we're all human after all yep last question is what does a healthy life look like to you well there's two ways to, to look at that question uh, a healthy life I think is a life that is complete mm-hmm. that checks the boxes of emotional satisfaction of engagement of contributing of expression of gratitude i.e. contributing of uh, treating your physical body right mm-hmm. uh, um, and I think as a consequence mm-hmm. then being as engaged as one choose to be, chooses to be and uh, is as a healthy life is one that is as disease resistant mm-hmm. uh, as is possible given genetic predisposition as mm-hmm. well as lifestyle factors mm-hmm. that affect that. I love it. That brings me back to in CrossFit we talk about this continuum. It goes from sickness to wellness to fitness and the idea is that you're trying to put yourself as far on the side of fitness as you can to create this buffer against a disease. So exactly what we're talking about maximizing your health so that you are as resistant as you possibly can be to any disease. I love it. That's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really thank appreciate it. Thank you for it. having me. Um, you know, I appreciate every opportunity like this and getting to meet you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you learned as much from Dr. Perlmutter as I did. This was an awesome conversation. I want to know what's one thing that you learned from this conversation that surprised you the most. Let me know on social media using hashtag pursuing health. To make sure you never miss an episode and to receive exclusive content from me, head to my website, juliefouché.com and subscribe to my email list. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and consider giving the podcast a five-star rating on iTunes. Also, don't forget to share your stories. If you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send me an email at info at juliefouché.com. I'll choose some of these inspiring stories to share here on future episodes. Don't forget you can train with me through Beyond the Whiteboard by visiting trainwithjuliefouché.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Pursuing Health. This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox delivers 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage-breed pork directly to your doorstep on your schedule. I personally think meat can have a place in a well-rounded diet, but there's a huge, huge difference when it comes to animals that are raised in feedlots and fed primarily corn and soy and routinely given growth hormones and antibiotics, and those that are responsibly raised, fed their natural diet of grass, and never given growth hormones or antibiotics. ButcherBox gives me some peace of mind, knowing that I can trust my meat is the highest quality out there and will also taste amazing. You can order curated or custom boxes of meat, and they always come with recipe ideas for you to explore. My husband Danny and I have paired our butcher box meats with vegetables from our local CSA, all but eliminating the need for grocery shopping. ButcherBox is extending an awesome offer to you for listening to Pursuing Health. You can get $20 off your order plus a free order of their delicious bacon. 
by heading to butcherbox.com and using the code JULIE20 at the checkout. That's butcherbox.com and code J-U-L-I-E 20. Hope you check it out and that it makes your life a little bit easier just as it has done for me. This episode is brought to you by Mobility Wad. Do you struggle to get into good positions in your training and workouts? Are your movement compensations causing you undue pain and grief? MWOD's belief is that every human being should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. For nearly 10 years, Mobility Wad has been the go-to for the world's best athletes and teams. Do you know what hundreds of Olympic and world-class athletes, professional teams in the NFL, MLB, basketball, hockey, rugby, and soccer, and dozens of universities all have in common? They use Mobility Wad to train and compete at their best. I first took Dr. Kelly Surratt's movement and mobility course in 2013, and since then have read his books and followed his videos for ideas on how to address my own movement restrictions. But sometimes having all this information can become overwhelming, which is why I think the real genius is in the MWOD subscription. As part of this subscription, you have access to not only hundreds of hours of video content that can be filtered based on your specific questions, but also a daily 10-minute Mobility WOD video. You just log in and follow Kelly's instructions as if he is there coaching you in person for 10 minutes per day. You may pick up certain exercises that you wish to incorporate on a regular basis before or after your workouts. But at the very least, by following this daily program, you know you are addressing a wide range of movement patterns and body parts on a regular basis without having to think about it. I often do these sessions first thing in the morning or before bed as a way to wind down from the day. In addition, you have access to an on-ramp sequence and a 14-day mobility challenge that helps you understand the basics and identify the areas you personally need to focus on. You can lean on the MWOD community and discussion boards to learn from others who have been through similar situations or injuries. And if you need more personalized help, you can use the MWOD list to find a like-minded practitioner in your area. It's easy to become part of the Mobility Wad community, but for being a Pursuing Health listener, you can receive 20% off an annual membership with code Julie Fouché. That's J-U-L-I-E-F-O-U-C-H-E-R. Just visit www.mobilitywad.com. Full potential, full power. Full power.